Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode four of Wild, Messy, Infinite Love. Um, today's episode is called Scarcity and Abundance. Um, so I can't believe it, but this is uh, the fourth week in a row that I am publishing a podcast episode. Um, I am beyond, beyond excited to keep on doing this, um, to keep being able to hold these sorts of conversations with all of you out there in the world. Um, so we are just going to keep on rolling. Um, I'm really excited for today's episode in particular because we are going to be talking about one of my favorite beverages, wine. Woo! So, um, put on your French beret, uh, grab some grapes and cheese and crackers, and let's hunker down for some good, old-fashioned, Jesus-making-miracles time. Let's talk about it. I used to work at a small private Christian school. I was essentially their Bible teacher for the high school students. Um, so I would teach classes like spiritual formation, um, Hebrew Bible, and the New Testament. Um, I was also in charge of leading two weekly chapel services for our students, um, both middle school and high school. And the really interesting aspect of this private Christian school was the fact that it was run completely through a, a church, a big church. Um, I'm not kidding when I am telling you that the way I got people to understand where I worked was by telling them that I worked at that church that looks like a massive Greek temple along the highway. Um, and people's normal response was, Oh, that church. Dude, that place is freaking huge. <laughs> so that's the kind of church that I worked at for this school. Um, but anyway, this church was your typical evangelical-minded megachurch. Um, it wasn't necessarily to the point of being like Westboro Baptist or anything like that, but they were definitely a church that leaned more conservative when it came to politics and theology. Um, honestly, don't ask me how I got the job in the first place or how I managed to make it through an entire school year without being branded a total and utter heretic uh, because my theological and political beliefs were not in alignment with the school at all. But somehow I got the job, somehow I made it through without pissing off too many people. Um, but one of the things that this church did that really rankled my feathers was um, constantly talking about winning. Questions like, how are we winning souls for Christ? Or where is the win in this situation? Um, these questions were bandied about constantly. Or statements like, my student prayed in class today. What a win! Um it was, for me, it was as if the church was in like this competition. It was like making life into a game. 
and not just like the fun little board game that you play with your family every other year. Um, but it was literally a competition and you had two choices. You either won by accepting Jesus into your heart and becoming a member of this church, or you lost, which for many probably meant burning for eternity in hell. Um, I don't think this will come as a shock to many of you listening. Maybe it will. I don't really know. But I don't believe in hell, um, at least as it exists as this like afterlife penal system that you spend eternity in. Um, so all this competitive winning language really bugged me. And I was always left with the question of, are we really reducing God or Jesus or religion or spirituality down to a point system? Um, you know, if you get the right points or enough points or possibly a combination of the two, we somehow get this golden ticket into eternity. We somehow become the winners, quote unquote, winners of the game. Um, and I'm sure many of you could probably think back to your own church experience and you'd probably be able to point to some sort of similar vocabulary or some sort of similar experience yourself, right? Um, you know, oftentimes we see churches that are either obsessed with this competitive language, like winning, um, defeating sin, conquering sin, slaying sin, slaying the devil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or perhaps they seem solely focused on going somewhere else, going to heaven instead of hell, um, you know, leaving this earth, the rapture, that sort of stuff. Whether you end up going to heaven or hell, um, in their minds, in either case, when we die, we go away from this world so to someplace else. Uh, maybe in other language or other iterations of this beast um, that rears its ugly head is something along the lines of um, holier-than-thou language. Um, things like, I've been a Christian all my life, so clearly God must love me more and will bless me more than the person who became a Christian on their deathbed. They're just going to get the t dinky little one-bedroom apartment right behind the dumpsters in heaven while I'm going to get the penthouse suite or something like something along those lines. Um, that's a common one that I've heard. Um, all of this is a form of reductionism. Um, it's reducing the work of religion and spirituality to a point system. Um, you know, praying enough, doing enough service projects, giving the right amount of money each Sunday, attending church enough Sundays out of the year, um, no matter what the spirit or the intent behind it is, is what it takes to become saved. And it, Ultimately, this stuff becomes a, the currency of salvation. Um, very real aspects of our life, like forgiveness, grace, joy, love, peace, all that marks the best of religion and spirituality is foregone. Um, what's supposed to be the means of salvation are no longer um, and it's really interesting, at least to me, that things like forgiveness, grace, joy, love, peace, um, while these things do include some form or some modicum of human control and choice, like we need to choose to forgive others, we need to choose to love others, um, we need to sometimes choose joy, um, you know, that kind of stuff. 
there is also a modicum of these realities existing outside of our control control because we can't control people to make them forgive us or love us um, or show us wholeness and peace or we can't even control people to be filled with the joy by our presence um you know, formulas such as praying, serving, giving money at the offering plate, attending church, though, um, we can fully control that. Um, we control the flow of that currency. Um, and wouldn't you know it, at least within our capitalist economic system, there is a finite amount of currency that circulates. Um so because of that, we need to control the currency of salvation because there's a finite amount of it out there in the world. There's n- simply not enough to go around for everyone. Um, so I need to be the one, the one who amasses as much for myself as I can. There's not enough salvation in this world for everyone. So we need to be transported someplace else because this world just simply isn't enough. And this is what I and many others would call a worldview of scarcity. Um, It's a worldview that is entrenched in the belief that there is simply not enough resources to go around. There's not enough money. There's not enough food. There's not enough land. There's not enough religious space. There's not enough room for diversity. There's not enough salvation, etc., 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 Um, This worldview forces many to think that they either need to protect their own or gather as much as they possibly can. They need to hoard it all because otherwise things are going to fall apart. Um, This is the imperial drive of empire, right? You know, like amass more wealth, amass more power, land, military, influence, all this stuff because there's not enough land or wealth or power in the world to share with others. Um, either that there's not enough for others or they're encroaching on what I have gathered and what I have amassed. And so I need to put them down. I need to defeat them, conquer them, vanquish them. I am going to win. Does that sound like anything we've already talked about today? Um, So this is seen on the state level, but it's also seen on personal levels. You know, people who feel like they have to step on others and ruin other people's careers in order to achieve their promotion at work. Um, You know, people who feel like they have to ensure their own race's survival by expelling other races from their neighborhood or communities or their nations. Um, That's what white supremacy at its root is all about. They don't feel like there is enough in this world for there to be any sort of cultural diversity. So they need to get rid of anyone that's not like them. Um, You know, that's what this worldview of scarcity ingrains in us. Um, And, you know, for me, It seems that this worldview of scarcity is the source for this competitive language, the source for these like imperial drives for 
amassing material wealth, the source for us versus them language for tribal warfare. It's as if like this worldview of scarcity is the root illness and things like competitive language and us versus them mentalities and racism and this other terrible, terrible stuff in our world. These are just symptoms of this root illness. Um, but I bet you're saying right about now, but wait, Eric, I thought the, you said this podcast was about wine. I got my cheese and crackers and was ready for a good time. I wasn't ready to be depressed about people's cynicism of the world. <sighs> Don't worry. The wine is coming. Um, just hang in with me for a little bit. So <clears throat> this worldview of scarcity is not a new phenomenon at all. And I would argue that it goes back to our ancient pre-civilization roots when we were hunters and gatherers. Um, there's always seemed to have been a drive within humanity to amass as much as one can because there just simply isn't enough for everyone in the world to have some. Um, and it was also really present in Jesus's age when the Romans ruled the world. Um, the Roman Empire was the epitome of imperial drive for amassing material wealth, power, influence, land, military might, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I mean, look at the Good Samaritan that we um, read a few weeks ago. The lawyer's question of who is my neighbor is not just a question of drawing boundaries, but it's also a question that asks, for whom is there enough room for in God's chosen people? Um, clearly, the lawyer of Luke is believing that Samaritans would not have been considered holy or worthy enough. Um, the first century Jewish religion simply was not big enough for them. There wasn't enough room for that difference of thought. So we turn today to another tale of Jesus coming to us from the Gospel of John. Um, and today we're going to look at the first of Jesus's miraculous signs found within John. Now I know this podcast series is supposed to be about parables and not Jesus's miracles and all that kind of stuff. Um, but an interesting fact about the book of John is that it doesn't actually have any parables. Um, but what John does have is these miraculous signs and wonders performed or spoken by Jesus. And these signs or wonders in the book of John sort of serve as um, Jesus's parables for all intents and purposes. So I figured that that was enough for our purposes too. Um, so we read in John chapter 2 um, about this really interesting story where Jesus and his disciples and his mom are at this wedding in Cana. And at this wedding, Jesus turns water into wine. I told you we'd get to the wine. Um, so the Bible says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Um, now, it's important to note here that wine was a fixture of first century Jewish weddings, much like it is today. 
So the best wine was served at the beginning while the cheap, not so good wine was served at the end when everyone was already drunk and they couldn't really tell the difference. Um, just a quick side note. Did you know that Jewish customs involve a lot of drinking? Um, for instance, this is just a fun little trivia um, tidbit for you. Um, so for instance, the festival of Passover, um, at least during the actual um, ritual meal that they have, traditionally includes drinking four full glasses of wine throughout the evening. Um, that's like drinking a whole bottle of wine yourself. And that's not including what's drunk after the ritual meal during the celebration that follows. Um, or again, the festival of Purim, which is a festival that commemorates Queen Esther. Um, it's been said that for some, the goal of Purim was to get so drunk that you could no longer tell the difference between Mordecai and Haman, who are the two diametrically opposed foes of the story of Esther. Um, so that's just a fun bit of trivia. Uh, but basically, wine was really, really important, especially as it occurs to community and abundance and all that kind of stuff. But we'll get to that. Um, I think it's also really important to note uh, Mary, Jesus's mother's role in this story. Um, you know, in most common interpretations, Mary gets a really bad rap um, because in the next verse of verse four, we see Jesus responding to her request that, you know, the wine's gone. Jesus says to her, woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not come yet. Um, so many common translations and interpretations of this verse will say that Jesus is merely shrugging off his mother, that he doesn't have much respect for his mother, that Mary's just kind of being an annoyance or a, um, a, a side character that doesn't really hold much weight. But right before this, we have Mary being the one who's presenting the problem at hand to Jesus. Um, it's as if to say that Mary understands that there's a miracle that must be worked out and Mary believes her son is the one to do it. Mary's the one who goes up to her son and says, yo, Jesus, they have no wine. We need to do something about this. Um, she sees that there is some sort of revealing about to go down and she turns to Jesus to do the revealing, which he does eventually. And Another side note, I know I do a lot of side notes and go off on bunny trails, but this story is not about the 100% factual evidence of Jesus turning water into wine. Sorry to burst your bubble, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but anyway, Mary sees that there's some sort of revealing that's about to go down and she turns to Jesus to do the revealing. Um, so... Jesus has like this odd response. He's like, yo, what concern is that to you and me? My hour isn't come yet. Um, but I believe that this is the author's way of foreshadowing, foreshadowing what is to come. Um, because in the book of John, references to hours mean more than simple time measurement. Um, when the gospel of John ref talks about my hour or the hour to come, it's significant of the full magnitude of what Jesus is doing, which for the author of John is fully realized in Jesus's death and resurrection. Um, it's as if to say the author is saying, 
that the story that I'm telling you about is just a foretaste. Jesus's full hour hasn't come. This is just the opening act. It's not Jesus being disrespectful to his mother. It's Jesus saying, what concern of that is that to me? Because there are greater things yet to come, Um, which sets up the story of Jesus's miracle really nicely. So let's continue. Um, In verse five, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Again, Mary showing belief in what her son is saying and doing. Um, And then verse six continues um, with this. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So the, for the purposes of this story, these jars are more than just giant jars. These jars symbolize Jewish ritual and religious practice, particularly as it pertains to purification. Um, and these rituals surrounding purification were a way of sectioning off who was in and who was out. It was sort of a way of vocabularizing and ritualizing us versus them. Um, And as I said before, the story isn't about giving 100% empirical evidential fact. Um, The story is trying to do something different. Um, So you have these stone water jars that are symbolic of Jewish purification rites. And I found this really cool quote from the New Interpreters, the New Interpreters Bible Commentary, um, which is a great commentary if you're ever in need of some more information about a Bible verse. I highly suggest this one. But this is a quote that I found in this Bible commentary. The essence of any miracle is that it shatters conventional explanations and expectations. And this miracle is no exception. Um, By using the symbolism of the jars, the author is saying Jesus is about to disrupt some generally perceived ways of viewing the world Um, He's going to shake things up and present a new way of ordering and viewing the world. So Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward called to the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus turns the water into wine, but it's not just the cheap wine. It's the best wine. Um, This isn't barefoot wine that you buy from Target. This is like top shelf Don Perignon that has been aging for like 200 years or whatever. Um, this is the creme de la creme. And this is uh, really telling um, and really significant for a couple different reasons uh, and for a couple different aspects that are going on in this part of the story. So um, I want to pause and give you three different thoughts on what's actually happening here. And as I go through these three different thoughts, I want you to keep in mind 
what we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, um, what we were talking about when we were talking about this worldview of scarcity, this competitive language, this us versus them mentality, um, because this Bible passage, this story, this miracle, um, this is almost a direct contrast to that worldview of scarcity that we've been told all of our lives. So first, this story tells us that Jesus transforms. Um, So Jesus takes these giant jars that symbolize Jewish rituals and religious practices of purity and says, see, I am making things new. I am bringing about recreation and restoration. I am making things as they should be. Um, You see, the Gospel of John has really strong connections with the Genesis story of creation, which is all about God creating and breathing forth new things from shapeless masses, whether it be the great void, the chaos waters, or humanity from the clay. Um, And here in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus taking these jars and recreating their purpose where once they were used for ritual purity, which was a way of sectioning off who was in and who was out, pointing back to that worldview of scarcity, um, these jars became vessels of the liquid of the gods. These jars became the containers which bear the joy and mirth of life to the fullest, which is a point that the author and Jesus are trying to make. Um, Living into the kingdom of God slash Um, living into the inheritance of God's blessings through the covenant, if you're wanting to take a more traditionally Jewish route, or living into the true purpose for one's life as a member of the cosmos and as a member that is connected to the same divine spirit. That stuff transforms us. It transforms the way we view the world. Um, No longer do we view the world as like this tribal warscape. No longer do we view this world as divided and sectioned off between us and them. It's not about figuring out who is in and who is out. No longer are we able to ignore the cries of our neighbors or the oppressed minorities of our world and communities. No longer are we able to ignore that sense or calling that we have to fulfill our true potential by discovering and becoming who we truly are at our deepest selves. No longer are we able to ignore the exploitation of our planet or the crisis of climate change. No longer are we able to view the world as a scarce and desolate hellscape where there isn't enough for everyone. No longer do we view the world as a game where you either win or you lose. Because ultimately it's not about how we are different or how I can be better than you. It's not a comparison game. It's not a game or a competition at all. This transformation opens our eyes to see that life and our world is about a shared common life that we have with every single being around us. And when we are transformed, we become vessels who bear 
the liquid of the gods. We bear the joy and full mirth of life. We bear the love that we find in ourselves, in others, and our world. We are the ones who are filled like stone jars with water, but overflow with the wine of love, peace, and justice. This is the transformation I'm talking about. It's, this transformation isn't about saying the right prayer to Jesus. It's not about getting the currency of salvation by going to church enough. It's not about being transported some other place. The transformation happens here in the present. Um, and it's about living into what we are meant to be, people and creatures of community with a commitment to peace and justice for all things because we're connected to all things. And if you are able to do that without going to church on Sunday or without praying to God or whatever, whatever, you are tapping into that divine source and you are being transformed. Whether you use the vocabulary of Jesus or not, I don't care. I really don't. Um, so my, I, I have a second thought here um, because transformation is great. But the second thought is also really um, thought-provoking for me. But it actually doesn't come from me initially at all. Um, so I can't take full credit for it. I can't really take any credit for it. Um, it comes from my dear, dear friend, Jonathan. Um, a friend with whom I've shared many, many hours with, both within the classroom and outside of the classroom, both at Wesley, where we both currently attend, and also dating back to our shared years in undergrad at Messiah College. Um, this guy is both wise and loving, and he's an absolutely wonderful human being. So shout out to you, Jonathan. Uh, anyway, so the second thought is this. Jesus invites the party to continue. Um, so one of the things my friend Jonathan said to me was that Jesus could have performed a miracle where he provided the couple who's getting married like a million bucks, but he didn't. Instead, Jesus turns water into wine, allowing the party to continue and allowing the people to continue focusing not on material wealth or pleasure, but instead on the intentional act of being in community with one another. Um, because community is a crucial aspect of the divine source to which we are all connected. Community is what says that we are beings of relationship. I mean, it's not good for people to be alone. Studies have shown that companionship and relationship are crucial factors in having a good quality of life. And Jesus is claiming that community is better than a worldview of material wealth because being fo focused on gaining more and more material wealth is just another symptom of a worldview of scarcity. Whereas being focused on community is inherently an act of being focused on our shared common life together, love, peace, justice for all, all this stuff that is the antithesis of a worldview of scarcity, which brings us to my last thought. Um, third, 
The world is not a world of scarcity, but a world of abundance. Let me repeat that once more. The world is not a world of scarcity where people can't get enough, where there isn't enough to go around, but the world is a world of abundance that is springing forth with new life and new growth and enough for all. Um, So Jesus does not just turn a barrel of water into wine. Um, Jesus doesn't take a case of water bottles and turn them into a case of wine. Jesus makes between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. That is a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of wine. So just to put this in perspective, five gallons of wine is an entire case of wine. So then divide 180 by five, that's what, like 90 cases of wine? That's a lot of wine. Um, There's like, what, 12 to 15 bottles of wine in a case? So I'm really bad at quick math, but that's a lot of wine. And the point that Jesus and the author are trying to make here is to actually point out the absurd extravagance with which Jesus is performing this miracle. Um, you know, as I quoted before, the essence of any miracle is that it shatters conventional explanations and expectations. Um, the conventional explanations and expectations were that there wasn't enough to go around. Um, it's gotta be us versus them. It's gotta be some have, and some will not have. And Jesus is saying there is enough to go around plus much, much, much more. Um, We see this again in the feeding of the 5,000, even though um, the number 5,000 is kind of a misnomer because even the Bible says that um, the count of 5,000 was just the men who were present. That doesn't include women and children who were there as well. So the number would have been inflated beyond 5,000. But anyway, um, we see this again in the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus takes what many would have thought to be not enough food two fish and five loaves of bread, and he multiplies it to the point where everyone in the crowd can have their fill. And there's still tons of food left over, 12 baskets full of food left over. Um, Jesus is making a bold claim. His claim is that there is enough. This world is a world brimming with abundance, with enough love, enough grace, peace, salvation, justice, whatever you want to throw in there. There's enough in the entire world for everyone, plus some. Um, So Jesus is saying we need not be held sway to the belief that the world doesn't hold enough for us. Um, You know, we don't need to be held sway that salvation can't be found here. So we need to go somewhere else to be saved. Um, there's not enough money for everyone to be found here. There's not enough food. There's not enough. There's not enough. There's not enough water. There's not enough in this world for everyone. We do not need to be held sway and believe that worldview system any longer. Um, so just as a sort of mental exercise, um, I did a little bit of research. Now, this is not extensive research. I'm not very good with numbers. I don't 
have access to all the different studies where I would be able to find definitive numbers. So these are very rough numbers, but I did some research into the cost of um, eliminating things like world hunger, world poverty, and um, providing clean water for everyone. So according to my very brief Google searches, uh, the UN estimates that world hunger could be eliminated by spending $30 billion a year. Um, world poverty could be eliminated by spending $175 billion a year. And clean water for everyone could be uh, um, provided for the cost of $150 billion a year, um, which is roughly about $350 billion dollars or so. Um, did you know um, that the USA spends $598.5 billion roughly a year on its military machine alone? A military machine which amasses power, amasses weapons, amass destruction, um, amasses arms and is saying there's not enough land, there's not enough power, there's not enough influence in this world for all of us. Um, it's, <clears throat> it's saying that um, the countries that are other than us, whether that otherness be cultural difference, racial difference, political difference, um, those aren't allowed to be here on this planet because there's simply not enough room for anyone who's not American or democratic or white or whatever have you. These things that are other present a threat to our way of life. They're a danger to our way of life and it's us versus them and therefore they need to be eliminated. We as a country spend $598.5 billion a year feeding into that sort of worldview. Um, now, I say this broadly speaking, um, by saying that I don't wish to demean the individuals who gave their time, their energy, and in many cases, their lives in the service of the US military. Um, I still do wish to honor those who are willing to give their lives to benefit others because that is absolutely a worthy and honorable sacrifice. But despite that sacrifice, there is something wrong with just how much the U.S. spends on its military budget. Um, in one Forbes study as of 2016, the U.S. spent more money on its military budget than China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, India, France, the U.K., Japan, and Germany combined. That's eight of the largest and most powerful countries in the world, and the U.S. outspent all of them combined in the year 2016 on military expenditures. There's something wrong with that figure. So getting back to um, the UN estimates, about 350 to $355 billion a year to end world hunger, to provide clean water for everyone, to end poverty. 
um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so monetarily speaking, there's clearly enough money in the world to end world hunger and to provide homes and jobs and clean water to everyone. Uh, the U.S. could eliminate all these things by itself, single-handedly, if it were to take the money out of its military budget, and they would still have $243.5 billion to spend every year on their military, um, which, by the way, is still more than any other country in the world. Now, I know that's a bit of an oversimplification, but still, we're told that you know there's not enough in this world, we can't do anything to change things like world hunger or clean water for everyone or poverty. There's just not enough people and not enough time and not enough money in this world to actually change anything or transform anything. But that is a lie. Um, take, for instance, again, the scarcity, scarcity belief that it's us versus them. Um, this belief that there's not enough room for different political thought or religious thought or, you know, whatever, whatever that might be. Um, Jesus is claiming that there is enough room and we have, have, have to find ways to be an authentic, intentional and constructive community with one another a community that fosters growth within all individuals as we strive to continue to discover the interconnected spirit which we all share. Jesus is claiming that there is enough grace and love and peace and justice within our world for all. Um, but first, we must alter our worldview, which Jesus invites us to do. And the crazy thing is, is we're all craving for this. I mean, like think through how many people in your life have you heard say, or maybe you said this yourself, I am so sick of all the negativity on the news and in the media. I just wish I could see something positive. We are all yearning for viewing the world in a positive light if through viewing the world as a world of abundance not this world of scarcity not this world of negativity not this world that says there's nothing we can do to change things um but it begins with altering the way we view the world it begins with the reorientation of our starting point um, we must reorient ourselves to not view the world as a scarce hellscape um, but we need to view the world as a place brimming with new life and new growth for all who partake in it. Um, we need to focus on those things that are positive in our world. We need to focus on those moments when someone walks an old lady across the street. We need to focus on the young Boy Scout or Girl Scout troop who spends their free Saturday volunteering at the homeless shelter. We need to focus on when someone in bumper to bumper traffic lets us get over out of the goodness of their heart when they could have easily continued to cut us off from getting onto the highway. You know, like we need to focus on those moments of positivity. We need to focus on those moments where we see genuine connection and community 
between people. And now I'm not saying that this is an easy task at all, uh, and it's most certainly something that doesn't happen overnight. Um, but in my experience, it's something that continues to work on you each and every day. Um, because even I need to remind myself more often than I would like that the world is abundant and not scarce. Um, I too am competitive. I try to win arguments. I try to take the moral high ground. I try to say my way of thinking is better than your way of thinking or, you know, whatever it is. But like a muscle, the more we train our minds to see this world's abundance and grace, the easier it is for us to exist in that space continually. Um, so I encourage you to listen to the story of Jesus turning water into wine and let it transform you. Let it mold you into a communal way of living which reorients your mind to deny the worldview of scarcity that is blasted through the stereos of our society. Let yourself be overcome with the hope that maybe this world isn't going to hell in a handbasket. There is goodness in this world. There are lights shining in the darkness. There is grace and love and justice and peace to be found for all who wish to see it. Because folks, once you see the good wine, you can't unsee. Once you taste it, you can't untaste it. Once the snowball starts rolling down the mountain, it only continues to grow bigger and bigger. So let that muscle be trained so that your eyes can more continually see the new life and new growth that is brimming from all places. And may you drink deeply of the good wine, the good life, and the good abundant world that we all share together. Peace and love, y'all. Thank you.